Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul, you remember, sent Titus to the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, just south of the Aegean Sea. And he was there to be raising up elders and establishing order in the churches that had been planted there. This was how Paul did it. They would plant the church. They would stay long enough until they could appoint leadership, and then they would move on. Well, they apparently hadn't had enough time to do that. Who knows why? It doesn't tell us. But he trusted Titus to stay behind and do this. He gives us a long list in chapter 1 of the kind of qualifications he should look for. And then he explains you got to do this because there are a lot of really false teachers. There are a lot of bad guys out there that are going to want to come into the church and cause a lot of trouble. He says, especially in Crete, because you know what they're like. And we talked about that last time. So he spent the, the end of chapter one talking about the false teachers and what they do. And he calls them detestable and disobedient and all that. And then he starts chapter two with that word, but. It's a contrastive. He says, but as for you. They're disobedient. They're unfit for any good work. But as for you, in contrast to these people, here's what I want you to do. And he tells him to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Take a strong stand against these teachers, but you are also to teach sound doctrine for positive effect. Meaning you teach what the word says so that rather than being unfit for good works, good works are flowing out of the churches there in Crete. This is an important point, and it might even be considered the point of the book of Titus. We'll hit it more next time, actually, and even into chapter 3. But Paul is, is stressing the importance of developing a congregation, a community that is going to do good works. Obviously, we are committed to true doctrine, and I hope you know that we are that here. We're committed to sound doctrine, teaching the truth of God's word, and trying very hard not to skip anything, not to... Uh, minimize one thing and maximize another. But it's important to know we are not committed to sound doctrine for sound doctrine's own sake. Maybe you've met somebody like this where it's all about having your doctrine correct so that you can be the one who's correct. And it's, we, we want to have sound doctrine because the Bible tells us to have sound doctrine and that's why we have sound doctrine. And that's, that's all good. It's a good thing. But that's not why Paul tells us here. He tells Titus to do this because sound doctrine will produce righteous living. You hear me on that? That sound doctrine should produce righteous living. And in fact, that's the point. The whole reason we teach about the gospel, we teach about every various uh, doctrinal matter, is because it's supposed to make us better disciples of Jesus. You know, Jesus had a lot of very theological things to say, especially in the book of John. But Jesus had an awful lot more practical, everyday life things to say. And we are disciples of Christ. So if your doctrine is not making you a better disciple of Christ, you need to take a step back and say, is my doctrine really correct? Because Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus gives us this picture of fruit. That you plant a seed, we'll call that doctrine. You plant the seed of what you believe. A tree is going to grow up and it's going to bear fruit. And you can tell whether it was a good seed or a bad seed by the kind of fruit that is hanging on that tree. 
It's that, that's how it's true for our theology. What you believe and what you teach about God should be bearing good fruit. Now, there are folks that don't much care for that line of reasoning. What they'll say is, it doesn't matter what my life is like. All that matters is that it's true. Because if you want to be technical, a tree isn't an apple tree because it has apples. It's an apple tree because of the genetic DNA that causes it to produce apples. And if you look at it under a microscope, it doesn't matter. It's an apple tree. To which you go, all right. Well, it's not a very great apple tree if it doesn't have any apples on it, is it? And the rest of us looking at your life ought to be able to evaluate, are there apple trees or are you acting more like a bramble bush with the things you believe? I want to say this very carefully here, but we can overdo it in our emphasis on sound doctrine if we never get to the place of how this is to affect your life. And there are those that uh, I think are well-meaning that want to hammer, especially to preachers when we get together, we write books for each other. They'll say, you've got to preach that gospel and preach whatever aspect you favor. I preach the, the decision or preach the predestination or preach heaven or preach sin and, and repentance. And it's all those things. And, and that's, that's good. But there's never that next step towards now, how are you supposed to live your life? What accords with sound doctrine? And you can even look down on certain churches that emphasize practical living as lesser than a church that is more doctrinal or theological. But really, you shouldn't have to pick or choose between those things. It all works together. Verse 10 of this chapter is going to tell us that we are to adorn the doctrine. We are to decorate the doctrine. We moved into a new neighborhood, and the folks there rather like to decorate for Christmas. They rather like to adorn their houses. So we're having to, you know, step up our game a little bit so that we, uh, we don't look like Ebenezer Scrooge on the street. We want to adorn the house, right? Well, it's similar like that. You've got the sound doctrine, but you are to adorn it, make it attractive for others by righteous living, to demonstrate to the world that this is indeed the truth. So knowing that, Paul in verses 2 through 10 is going to go through all the various roles of a household. He's going to do old men, old women, young women, young men, and even the bond servants. Everybody that was participating in a household and describe various things that sound doctrine ought to produce in that group. It's a household. And that's what the church is. We are a household together. God's the master and we live under his house. And when we come together as a congregation, that we're a family. We're not just coming together because we all like this church and this is where I go. But we're a team. We're a family. We're a household that works together. So very practical this morning. I considered taking each one of these and giving a whole week to that study. I decided to do it all at once because I kind of like this this overwhelming impression that it can give you. Just hearing a lot of virtues at once because it gives you the sense of what a Christian is supposed to look like. And when we get to your category, I hope that you will take extra time to listen and pay attention and think, how am I living up to that? Are these the things that I'm even aspiring to? And maybe you come to this and you'll go, wow, the Holy Spirit's really working on me and I'm doing really well. Or perhaps you'll say, okay, I, uh, I know I'm saved, but I, I got some adorning to do. <laughs> I got some decoration of the doctrine of Jesus to do in my own life. So let's get into this. Verse two, teach what a with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine? Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So the first category here is 
older men. This is not elders as in the office of the church, because we know that that role of elder was actually open to young men as well. This is specifically talking about older men, presumably based on, uh, there's probably some flexibility here, but based on what we know of this language in Paul, this is probably men whose children are grown are presumably married and starting to have families of their own. That, that would be considered an older man. You're not really a young man anymore, but you've moved past that. How is an older man in God's church to conduct himself? How is an older man who has believed the gospel, what is he to look like? Well, the first thing he says is sober-minded. You know that, that that phrase to be sober in the New Testament is used 10 times and it's usually used towards men as a moral instruction to be sober-minded. What does it mean? To be serious. To be serious. As opposed to drunk-minded, right? How's your judgment when you're drunk? Well, I wouldn't know. I've never been. Okay, that's not what I'm saying, all right? <laughs> not you personally. How is one's judgment when they're drunk? Is it better than usual? No, you're not supposed to operate heavy machinery, right? You don't know what you're doing. And Paul says that's how older men in the church are to think about life the time with sober-minded to be alert to be thinking about things seriously the opposite of this would be things like frivolous where you're putting all of your energy and all your time into things that are not even of eternal value but not even of temporal value they're just sort of cotton candy of life and I'd say another opposite of that would be panicky the opposite of being sober-minded is somebody that panics at every bad news story that comes over the internet or every crisis that comes into your life. You just kind of lose your head. We have this picture, don't we? I mean, historically and culturally of the older men are to be the ones when they receive the news, they kind of, all right, let's take a minute. Let's think that through. Let's evaluate it. And that's how an old man in God's church is supposed to be. Now, when everybody else is getting all riled up and panicked, you're there sober-minded thinking straight. The second one, very much related to it, is dignified. Dignified. Conducting yourself in a respectable manner. Now, we're going to read in a second a verse from Leviticus that tells us old men are to be respected because they are old men, just in general. But he's giving the instruction to such men, you ought to conduct yourself in such a way that inspires respect. To be respectable, to be dignified in the way that you dress. I'm not going to try to be mean today, but I am just going to throw this out there. If you are an older man and you are still dressing and living the styles that you did when you were a younger man, it's probably time to, to change that. Why? Is because you say I can't live this way? No, I'm saying it's not exactly respectable. Those that you think you're trying to get on your team are like, oh, this guy. Okay, I love you a lot, but I mean, you know, you're not 25 anymore, right? Or your language. When you get to a certain age, your language should shift. Just not even the words you use so much, just the way you speak needs to be different than it was when you were 20, 30, or even 40. As you get older, there needs to be some dignity, some gravitas, weight to what you say. So that when you open your mouth to speak, people just kind of hush and listen. Because what he says is important. And also your, your attitude. There's really few things more tragic than an old man that has as bad an attitude as he did when he was 12 years old. If you've ever worked in a customer service job, you know those people exist. I heard some amens before I even finished that sentence. That was great. <laughs> you ever been out there and it's like, man, what are you, you're, aren't you a little old for this, right? To be throwing tantrums and, and smashing things and cussing me out? Dignified. We don't do, I'm, I'm not rebuking anybody in here, by the way. I'm just saying, this is what the word says. But third, he says to be sound. 
which this word is used a lot, sound doctrine, etc. And it actually means to be healthy or to be whole, like everything is right where it's supposed to be. And we use that word pretty much the same. You say something is sound, it means it's put together well. And he gives three of the major Christian virtues here. Sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Now, usually we'll read faith, hope, and love, right? Instead of faith, steadfastness, and love. But hope and, and steadfastness or endurance kind of go together, right? Hope is the, the looking forward, the attitude. And steadfastness is I'm going to keep on walking towards what I hope for. So if a man is sound in faith, that means he can't be shaken in his beliefs in Jesus anymore. We're past that. I'm grounded in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're never going to knock me off this pedestal. Sound in love. Older men are to be full of love for one another. And an older man's love is going to look different than an older woman's love or a young man or a young woman's love. But it's real and it's necessary and important. And steadfastness, sound and steadfastness. That means if you're an older man in the faith, you should be at the point with Jesus where nothing can break you. Not persecution, not trials, not heartbreak, but you're standing on the word and you're going to finish this race. Today's challenge, and this is going to apply certainly beyond just older men, is that nobody wants to accept the fact that I may have moved into this category of older man in Christ. And often want to fight it. And you'll see this. We even kind of make jokes about this sometimes, that when a man realizes, oh my goodness, I'm starting to look a lot more like my dad. If you're like me, then you looked like your dad since you were 15. There's not a thing you can do about it. But, you know, and especially when you answer the phone and they still think, oh, Troy? No, it's not Troy. It's, it's Tyler. But when you start to realize, I'm, I'm getting a little older, we're going to run off and, what's something I wanted to do when I was 14 that I never got to do? And there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I've kind of lost sight of some of the things I enjoyed and I love, but I think you know what I'm talking about. When you're going to go off and you're not going to try to live a great life as an older man, I'm going to try as an older man to live like a younger man. But we need to be able to accept the fact that this is where I am in life. I've grown up. I'm older now. I'm not a young man anymore, and I'm okay with that. There's a, there's a big push, though. Every commercial, right, is like, how can we delay this inevitable a little bit longer so that you fool everybody? Oh, he's 70, but he looks like he's 15. It's like, that's kind of frightening, isn't it? Because <laughs> here's why, among other reasons. First of all is because just you'll, you'll be much happier if you can accept where you are in your life. But young men and young women both need this older man in the church so that they can look up to him and learn from him. And I think part of the reason many of us are afraid to grow up is because those that have spend all their time wishing they hadn't. And that's something I've talked about before, so I'm not going to go into it anymore. But we, we need that older man to look to and to follow, not just in books or in the news or on sports field, but in our own churches. Say, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. When I have a question about being a man, that's who I go and I talk to. I like to, when I was a youth pastor, I used to compare this sort of person to Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. You ever seen that movie? He's just got that dignity and Gregory Peck voice and the way he walks. And there's just something about that is like, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want to be able to look up to and follow. And so I used to tell our boys, like, you need to find an Atticus in your life and try to be like him as best you can. And sometimes they'd be nice, like, I want to I follow you, Tyler. I'm like, I'm 17 myself here. Just, no, I'm not the one you want for this, but... Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. If you're an older man, don't feel irrelevant. 
And certainly don't feel threatened by the fact that you're growing older. Embrace your place in the church as a man of God who has lived life well and now has something to pass on to those who are coming behind you. I certainly don't think there's a single thing wrong with growing older, growing old. We don't even like to say the word old anymore, do we? But that's a, a good thing. Just as being young is a good thing and being middle-aged is a good thing. Let's as a congregation to decide we're not going to let that kind of thing scare us. We're going to walk into the next phase of life full of hope and joy because this is just for a, a moment anyway. And we're going to be in eternity forever. And that's not going to be something we worry about anymore. Well, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So older women, same thing. We're going to do old men, old women, young women, young men. So it's a chiastic structure, a very small one, but some of you all know what that is. So what is an older woman? Well, same thing. A woman who has grown children, no longer a maiden, but a matron. We don't really use those words much anymore, but uh, they certainly would apply here. And he says, likewise. So he's saying, everything I just said about the old men is to be true for the old women as well. And in a different way, but this, these are similar virtues. They're not so wildly different that you, you can't learn from one another. So, well, nothing says I have to be dignified. That's for men. Well, no, it's, it's likewise, right? Well, the women shouldn't be slaves to wine, but I can't. No, 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 no. Likewise. It all works together, right? But Paul is giving specific instructions here, too. They are to be reverent. Reverent. That word is actually related to the word for priestess in the Greek there to conduct themselves like a priestess of God. And actually, we are all priests and priestesses of God, if we are in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, reverent, as opposed to wild or scornful. Unfortunately, maybe you've met an older woman in the church that wasn't reverent, but always had something nasty to say about the pastor or about the service or the music or somebody else or this group or that. And that's not reverent. That's not honoring God by your conduct. On the other hand, you probably have known an older woman in the church who was exactly that. God has blessed most churches that I've ever been into with at least a few of those. It's like, there you go. That's, that's the engine of prayer and love that keeps this, this thing going. They are not to be slanderers. Slanderers, that means to gossip. Gossips. Paul actually addresses this quite a bit in the pastoral epistles, that there was a problem with gossip among these women. And unfortunately, not much has really changed about that. Whether that's in person where you're, I just, you know, you didn't, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to speak out of term, I just think you need to know about this. Like when you're talking to somebody and you like whisper, like that's going to make it better. <laughs> I didn't really say it, I just kind of whispered what was going on. Oh, well, you know what's going on with that, don't you? Oh, well, let me just tell you so that you can, you can pray about it. Yeah, that doesn't count, right? God's not going to be okay with that. Or it can be online, too, where you're, you're messaging things, you're finding ways to be subtle in the way that, you know, plausible deniability to bring somebody down. I'll give you a little, little example. When I was 17 years old, my worship leader uh, had double kidney failure and had to step back from leading the worship. He's still around. He's doing good. But um, I had to step up and lead this worship team now. And... Everybody was cool with this, except for a, a small handful of, of a few women who were in their, probably in their, in their 50s, maybe a little bit older, and they were slanderers. They, they had a problem with me. They'd had a problem with the previous one, too, and they were always coming together and would say these comments to me that I knew good and well were intended to be a dig at me, 
But there was enough plausible deniability in how they said it that I could never quite address it. And I was a kid, right? I didn't know. And if this were to happen now, I probably would just call it out and say, what is that supposed to mean? But, you know, I, I was trying to be a respectful young man and trying to do well. But I always think about this, that they were not trying to help. They were not trying to be certainly not motherly to me or even a good friend. They were trying to make my life miserable. And the way they did that was through slander and through gossip. And this can even be, by the way, well, I don't do this personally, but are you reading all the gossip online? <laughs> Reading the gossip magazines? Are you trying to find out what somebody else is like? Well, they, I don't know them, so I can talk about them. Ah, no, it doesn't work that way either. And it's, you know, guys are not exempt from this, by the way. Because sometimes all sports reporting is is just gossip magazines for men. Haven't you noticed that? Or even like political news gets like that now. Like if I see another thing, it's like so-and-so tweeted this and so-and-so destroyed. I'm like, I just don't care, man. It's gossip, it's slander, it's distraction is what it is, but we're not to do that in the church. We're supposed to be cul-de-sacs for gossip. When somebody comes in and says something, then especially you older women ought to be the ones to say, no, no, we're not going to do that. Doesn't mean you have to you know, get in somebody's face to say, let's not talk about them. I wouldn't talk about you like this if somebody came to me, so let's not do that about him or her. Not to be slaves to much wine. And it is unfortunate also that today you have the, the trope of the wine mom. We've all heard of this. This is an older woman who is uh, just kind of looks good and everything seems fine, but behind the scenes we know she's drinking way more than she should, and that's why she acts out, and that's why she is hollering at everybody and going out and uh, getting a little tipsy and messing with the waiters and yelling, and that's a, that's a whole thing. And that's something that Paul specifically told women not to do in the church. So we all have the picture of the alcoholic abusive father, but this also applies to women too. If you're an older woman in the church or period, you don't need to be going out and partying. This is another thing that is, is often done sometimes. Where we're going to go back and reclaim our youth. How? We're going to go to the club. We're going to go to the bar. We're all going to get drunk and we're going to act crazy. That happens. And it shouldn't happen in God's church. And I don't believe that is happening in this church. But we need to be able to hear this as a preventative measure. Not slaves to wine or, by the way, CBD or marijuana or Oxycontin or whatever your intoxicant of choice might be. We're always to be sober-minded, okay? And finally, he says they are to teach. And this is good. I thought Paul said that he does not allow women to teach. Well, he's talking about different things. There's the standing up in the pulpit and teaching, the office of a teacher, and there's that personal discipleship that absolutely ought to be going on. So he's going to go on to say to teach the younger women in the next verse, especially that there's this example that is given of what a godly woman looks like. And I'll say it's similar to the older men. It is a shame that older women today are shamed and tempted rather than trying to set an example for the younger women to try and imitate the younger women. To try to rather be an object of respect and love, but to be an object of lust far beyond the point where that should have been happening as if it should be happening at all. This is very common these days, especially with the internet, as these things have grown. And there are women who should be discipling their daughters and their daughter's friends or those people in the church, but instead they're wanting to tag along and be just like them and go indulge their flesh in the name of discipleship. It's not the same thing. They're, tried, they're instead to lead the way and say, hey, this is not how a woman conducts herself. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Beauty is vain. You know that word for vain in the old Hebrew doesn't mean vanity like we think about it today. It means that it's ephemeral. 
It's like the wind, it blows away. Beauty only lasts for a short time and then it's gone. So if you're gonna spend your whole life trying to chase that, you're gonna miss out on something better, which is to fear the Lord. And I will say, like I said before, many young women desire to be like these previous generations. They desire to go back and, and not live out these negative examples that are being put out there. And those of you older women in the church, they need your companionship. They need your example. Don't think to yourself, oh, they don't want to hear from me. I promise you they do. I promise you they do. They need your help. So rather than lamenting as an older man or an older woman, the bygone days, it's good to remember those things and be nostalgic for them. And it's even appropriate to be a little sad about it sometimes. But rather than staying in that place, it's time to pass on what is worth passing on while stepping into the next stage of life and getting all the joy out of that that you can. Well, we move on in verse four now. They are to teach what is good and so train, verse 4, the younger women. So he kind of passes on to this next category here. Train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we're transitioning now to younger women and what they should aspire to be in God's church. And this is primarily to be taught by the older women. And the first thing he says is to love their husbands and children. And this seems like an obvious one, doesn't it? To love your husband, to love your children. But it is, unfortunately, a temptation to look towards your children or your husband with resentment. Because what could my life have been if it wasn't for these children? Look what she's doing and where they get to go. And look what her husband does for her. And look at this guy over here. The one that I have to wait for to come home every day. These things can start to creep in. And it becomes more, well, we're married because we know divorce is wrong, but we're not really going to do anything to try and build this up. That's not right. It is to love. And it's really interesting because in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, just in case you missed it, he also tells wives to love their husbands. So love is to go both ways in a marriage. They should be loving their husbands and children, not neglecting them for self. You'll meet these women sometimes who say, yeah, this is my family, but they're not going to get in the way of me living my life. Whether that means I'm going to go out and get my career, or I'm going to go out and have my fun and you can't stop me. That's not how it is to be in God's church. We are to set a pattern and to set an example of loving the husband and loving the children. And if you ever see this going on, older women, it's, it's up to you to step in and say something about that. When you hear somebody maybe making sarcastic comments about their child that goes beyond just playful teasing, you know, or saying things about their husband that start to alarm you a little bit. It's like, sweetheart, you're supposed to love your husband. Well, I do, I do. Okay, but then what are you saying something like that for? This is how the church can reinforce itself. Secondly, to be self-controlled. And just about everybody in this section is going to get self-control, to be able to master yourself, to not fly off the handle, to not be wild, to not be out of control. And, you know, there's a lot of folks that want to blame the fact that they're out of control on their background. Have you noticed that? That's about every group wants to do this. Say, so, well, I'm, I'm Italian. I can't help it. I get angry. I'm Irish. I can't help it. I get angry. I'm Hispanic. I get angry. It's what we do. Oh, I'm black. It's what we do. Oh, I'm Southern. It's what we do. It's like, hey, listen, everybody's got that problem. <laughs> Everybody has that, that ability to get out, out of control. And don't look to any excuse, whether it's something that happened to you or your ethnic background or your nationality or your job, whatever it is. We're to be self-controlled. And it's something that we ought to be able to call each other on too, men and women. Hey, you're out of control. You need to stop this. 
<laughs> don't tell me I'm out of control. No, we, in the church, we don't play that game. We are to help each other, control each other. All right, and then he says pure. This relates to sexual purity and modesty. And I, th I think we all understand the need for this one. Not to be parading oneself. Not to be going out, whether that's on the internet or it's downtown or in your neighborhood, in order to get looks from people. To get lustful glances coming your way. Oh, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, but what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make it easy for those around you to obey Christ? Or are you trying to get that attention for yourself? And certainly to remain virginal until the marriage comes around. That's men and women both. That you are to save yourself from marriage. This isn't, well, these times have changed. No, they haven't. It's always been like this. We're not unique in that respect. And I have, I've talked about this before, so I don't want to get into it too far. But for you ladies, modesty is an attitude as well. You maybe have interacted with women that might be fully clothed and are not inappropriate in their dress, but the way they speak and look and talk to you is crossing the line. It's like you're holding eye contact for just a little bit too long, or you're kind of saying these statements that are supposed to make him go, wait, what, what is that right there? Or maybe just, you know, what would be normal for somebody else is kind of giving a little hand on the shoulder. There's just something else going on. Modesty goes beyond how you dress to how you act as well. So that purity. Then he says, working at home. And man, I, I, had, I read about five or six commentaries for the book of Titus, and most of them were real good on this, but one of them was like, now, Paul probably just said this because it was expected for women to work at home in Roman culture. And, you know, we know we don't have to obey that one. Like, interesting. The one command that goes against what we normally would do is the one you think doesn't count. That's not how we do Bible study. Working at home. This is the biblical role of a young woman. And we should be very clear. This is a dignified, respectable, honorable thing. Many people will say, well, a woman just has to stay at home and take care of the kids. That, everybody's just looking down on her, and her husband is, is, is subjecting her to do that. I cannot tell you a, man, a woman that a man will love more than a woman that takes care of his house and raises his children well. I'm serious. I cannot tell you how many people have told me when I say, well, my wife is, is takes care of our house and, and raises our kids. They go, oh, what a blessing that is. That's so great. Or even women that will say, ah, I wish we could do that, or I miss those days, or whatever it is. So let's just leave aside this cultural bias against this. But, it, you know, it takes a full-time person to keep the house, does it not? And I'll, I'll tell you, there was a time where Catelyn and I were both working part-time jobs, and I was at the church part-time, and she was working for another company, and uh, we would kind of trade off while we were waiting for the church to bring us on. And, you know, I had about half the week where I was stay-at-home dad, and I gained a real respect for what that job entails. Because if you try to treat it like, well, we're just kind of home hanging out, then the house will fall down around your ears. That's what happens. It's amazing how, <laughs> we just, as I said, we just moved into this new house, and uh, I've, more than once I've said, how does, how does it just become filthy? <laughs> like, I told the children last night I was having a, I was having a moment with the kids, and like, from now on, upstairs and you never come down and unless you have like <laughs> booties on your feet and you you know you don't eat in here and you've all said that a million times and all that to say this this idea that well this is this is a lesser job it certainly is not to make a house a nice place for everybody to be you ever come home from vacation and the house is clean and ever you took the time before you left to make sure everything was right and you walk in and it it smells like your house again like oh we're home yeah, the beach was great, but it's good to be home. That's something that our young women ought to value and to try to, to pursue. 
And this can be many different capacities. Read Proverbs 31. She's working hard. She's also working hard outside the church, but it's also outside the home, excuse me. But it's with, with the goal of making a great home. It's hard work. We know it's hard work, but it's necessary work. And it's important that we value this in the church. And however this is going to go about in your house, I'm not trying to beat everybody down, but this is something that the older women are to teach younger women. You know, don't make them learn how to do all this stuff from Pinterest and Instagram. You know, teach, teach each other. This is how you, how you clean this. This is how you do this with your child. This is how you cook. This is how you do all these things. And again, well, they don't want to learn that. I promise you they do. I was a high school pastor for a long time, and these young ladies were always coming to Catlin and saying, will you teach me how to sew? Will you teach me how to bake cookies? Will you teach me how to do such and such? And she would say, well, I mean, you could talk to your mom about that. Oh, mom doesn't want to teach me. And then we would talk to the parents, and they'd say, oh, kids today, they don't care about that kind of stuff. Say, well, apparently they do. So let's, let's pass these things on. So he goes on and says to be kind. I mean, we're all supposed to be kind. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness, right? But especially, Paul wants to identify young women in the church are to be kind, to have a sweetness about them. And we have some very kind young ladies at this church, I will say that. I'm not, again, correcting here so much as I am reminding us of these things. But there is, of course, the push out there today that, you know, a young woman told to be kind, that's just a man's way of putting you down. You don't want to be kind and sweet. You want to be a boss, babe. You want to be bad. Everybody's got to get out of your way. And it's really funny how we take all these, like, masculine traits and assign them to women and say, that's what a real woman is supposed to be. She's tough and she's hard as nails and nobody gets past her. She says what she means and get out of her way. And is that really what a young woman ought to be? I'll tell you, it's not what attracts young men. I will say this, though. When a woman is very strong and forward like that, it can be overwhelming to a young man. And the forwardness, especially if there's flirtation involved, can be attractive to that person. But if that is not eventually softened into a real kindness, that's a, that's a recipe for a real miserable relationship. So just keep that in mind. Kindness. It's okay. It's good to be sweet. It's good to be nice. And finally, to be submissive to their own husbands. I always loved it. To their own husband. Not to every husband. Right? Like, oh, I'm a man. You've got to do what I say. You are not my own husband. So I'm not submitting to nothing, okay? Cheerfully, by the way. Not fighting for your own way. We did the marriage class, the love and respect. And that was so much fun, by the way. Did we all enjoy, enjoy that class? I love how much we laughed in that. That was a lot of fun. Because some of us would be laughing about a certain point, And then there's like a couple that are just kind of doing this. Because we got a little too close to home, maybe. Or... It's really funny to hear an argument you've had a hundred times like spelled out by somebody you've never met. And it's like, oh, okay, so maybe we can fix this. Submissive to their own husbands. And again, something to be taught by the older women to the younger women. Submit to your own husbands. Don't ever be the one saying, you just do what you want. Don't let him tell you what to do. He can't boss you. You're your own person. When she comes in and she's angry, she's upset about something, listen to it and, and do all the rest of that, which, I mean, women, you are so good at those interpersonal uh, discipleship moments, but you, you should bring it around to the point where you say, but honey, you need to submit to your husband. Well, I don't agree. It wouldn't be submission if you did. You need to submit to your husband. And once again, I hardly need to speak of the damage that feminism or social media, or whatever it is, has, has done to our young girls. The, the amazing and astonishing rise in pornography right now that is not being done through big corporations, but through individual girls, even not young girls, even older women, that are finding, oh, there are these crowdfunding sites where people will just send me money for these things. It's astonishing, and it's heartbreaking to think that so many are susceptible to that. 
So we don't have much to learn from the world about how men and women are to conduct themselves. There is a different standard in God's church. And it has to be positively taught and modeled, especially here for our young ladies, especially when this is so under attack. We talk a lot about masculinity is under attack. It's true, but so is femininity. And that's got to be fixed in God's church. Everybody in this room participates in that process. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, here's a word for you ladies. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And we hear that and we go, well, that's, that doesn't sound like today's woman. But I've mentioned this before. Maybe this hasn't quite made it so mainstream yet. There is such an online push right now from men kind of stepping in and taking their roles. We've had it with feminism. Here's our say. And what are they talking about? They're talking about we desire women that are gentle and quiet and submissive and are there to support us and love us no matter what. And they're not believers. And they're saying it with a lot of, a lot of things that should not be said. And they're giving a lot of excuses to people that don't deserve excuses. But it shows that Peter was right. There is an imperishable beauty to that kind of attitude, which we are to cultivate in the church. Grow, young ladies, into a woman that you can be proud of. Don't let the world make you jealous or make you resentful. But you delight in what the Lord has given to you. Verses 6 through 8. Likewise, so once again, everything that was just said, apply that to men. But urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So that moves on to the young men. So we kind of went men, women, women, men. That's how a chiastic structure works, okay? And he tells Titus, you are to be a model of good works, which gives us a, an indication of what category Titus would have fallen into. Because he doesn't tell Titus so much to be an example to the older men, but to the younger men. And we know that Titus had been with Paul for some time, so I doubt he was as young as, say, Timothy. But it kind of shows us where he would have fit. And Timothy, we do know, though, was, was rather young. And this is an important point for me to kind of stop off and say this. Who am I? Tyler Warner, born in 1991. Yesterday, by the way, my son Colton said, Dad, you were born in 1891, right? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. No. Um, but I, where was I? <laughs> Who am I to stand up here and give instruction to older men or older women or younger women, for that matter? Who am I to say anything? What have you done with your life? You know, this is when I first came down, people would, oh, you're, you're a pastor. I was 27 when we planted the church. And uh, they'd be like, okay, all right. And they kind of give you that look. And when I told them I had three kids and had been married for almost 10 years, that kind of calmed them down a little bit. But here's something to remember, just real quickly. I don't preach to you based on my experience and my authority and my training. I preach to you based on the authority of the Word of God. My job is to stand on what God has said. And I don't have to be 62 to understand what God's instructions to older men are in the church because they've been written down for us right here. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, do not let anyone despise your youth. Meaning don't let anybody come in and say, listen, young man, you don't know what you're talking about and you need to get out of the way for somebody who knows better than you. 
Why? Because Timothy was just the greatest man of all time? No, because as Timothy, your authority doesn't come from the fact that you've lived a long time and learned a lot of stuff. It comes from the fact that you know God and his Holy Spirit dwells within you. That's why we teach verse by verse through the word and not through my own theories about things. Teach the word. But as with others, the young men are to be self-controlled, masters of ourselves. And it's, it's kind of true, isn't it, that the stereotype of a young man is not a self-controlled person, is it? Out of control might be better. I had a tragic conversation with somebody one time who told me, so as a pastor, do you teach men that they shouldn't engage in pornography? To which I said, uh, yeah. Said, well, I don't really think that's fair. So what do you mean? He says, I just think it's unfair to ask a young man to control himself in that way when we all know that they can't. I said, you don't believe that, that anybody can abstain from pornography? He goes, no, I just, it's too hard. And this guy was a believer. And he didn't want to hear about the Holy Spirit and all that. But here's what I would say. Well, 17, 18, 19-year-old men go off and become Navy SEALs. They become Marines. They learn how to control themselves then. They were the kids about that age, storming the beaches of Normandy, jumping out of parachutes. So it is possible, isn't it? It is possible for a young man to control himself. And so that is something that we are to do as good soldiers of God to be self-controlled. And I'll say, by the way, it's miserable when you're out of control. To go back to that previous illustration, the meme online is how depressed all these guys are that they can't shake this addiction to pornography. It's not like we're, oh, I love it so much. It's like, this is crippling, and I think I might want to kill myself because of this. So in the church, we are to teach to be self-controlled. No, you can say no to these things. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, he will enable you to be self-controlled. It's important to at least have that virtue, not to say, well, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do, and eventually they'll come around. He lists next, integrity. This word, I, I wish he had translated it this way, actually. Literally, it means incorruptible. It comes from the word for corruption, but it's negated. So incorruptible, integrity. The English word integrity is like something that's integrated. It's everything is brought together. The way you believe and the way you act, there's no disjunction between them. They're all together in thought and in deed. And I just sit back and doesn't that just sound awesome to say the things that I believe and the things that I purpose to do and the things that I want to accomplish is always borne out in what I do. Unfortunately, sometimes we have to go through that Romans 7 process where it's like, the things I don't want to do, I can't stop doing. And the things that I really want to do, I can never get it right. Well, we are to work towards having integrity, being incorruptible, so that when you believe something, it's borne out in your actions. And there's a little point there, by the way, to be gracious with people. Because very often, somebody committing a sin, it might not be because they just delight in that sin so much. They might really and truly believe that what they're doing is wrong, but they have not yet learned to be controlled in themselves. So to teach that even young men are to have dignity. A dignified young man. It's not really a sentence you hear too often, is it? Rather than being foolish, rather than being frivolous, I used to tell this to uh, some of the guys that I was trying to disciple. I would say, you need to be able to be taken seriously. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to make jokes. It's okay to even do things that some people might say, oh, I don't know if I would play that many video games, or I don't know if I would watch football that much. That's, that's fine. But when the moment comes, are you, have you conducted yourself in such a way that when you need to be serious, people take you seriously? That's what dignified is. doesn't mean you've got to be you know, a sour-faced 
looking dude and she, everything, I can't be happy and I don't do anything exciting or anything fun. That, that's a recipe for trouble right there. Are you able to be taken seriously when the moment comes? When you come to church, for example, are you able to sit and listen to the message, to worship, to focus on your prayers, to serve when you need to serve? When you're at work, are you having a good time, but you're able to get the job done when the time comes? That's dignified. He talks about sound speech. Sound speech. There's that word for sound again, meaning healthy or wholesome. And the Bible is very plain that those in God's church are not to be having filthy speech coming out of their mouth. First of all, cursing. Uh, there's always, every couple of years, there's like there's a wave that goes through the church where everybody wants us to start cussing. There's nothing in the Bible about that. There absolutely is. Absolutely is. In fact, Jesus said, you're not even to intensify your speech. Remember Jesus, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to use a bunch of extra words to get your point across. That's sound speech. There's no room for coarse jesting, dirty jokes in God's church. There's no room for that kind of stuff. It's, it's supposed to be holiness coming out of our mouths. Or arrogance coming out of somebody. Being braggadocious. Is that, is that what a Christian is to be like? Bragging about themselves? Strutting around? Posting things online to show everybody how great I am? And certainly not blasphemy. Saying things about God that sound real edgy and tough but have no bearing on what the scripture says. Ranting. That's not part of a young man's life. I just couldn't help myself. I had to say what I needed to say. Sound speech only. This means that, especially you older men, when you're hanging out with the younger men, and you should spend time with the younger men, by the way, that when you hear these things coming out of their mouth, kindly and politely check them. Set an example by the way you speak as well. Set the tone for how we speak in God's church. Again, not exactly something that is a young man's most common attribute, is that he's got sound speech. Really, in the things he says, he's very clean. It's like, no, it's a lot of young guys, especially when they're in like middle school age, when it starts, they think, if I want to grow up, I've got to say a lot of bad words. Then hopefully you get a little older and you grow out of some of that. But it's not just about growing out of it. It's about being a man of God that says, I don't, I don't use words that are not holy, that are not edifying and building up the body of Christ. And look at what he says there uh, in verse 8. He says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. All that is to demonstrate that Christianity makes men and women better. That there's no room for accusation against anyone. That the young men of the church should not be drawing the accusation and the, the shaking of the head towards your church or your congregation. And I, I still am in this category of, of the younger men. And I can speak to the draw that these things are warning us against about being unruly. And undignified. There's just that, there's something in you that just wants to go out and break something every once in a while. And what that probably means is you need to stop watching so much TV and go outside is what that usually means I've found. But the other one is just being self-centered. That I might be very focused and I might be very self-controlled, but I'm using it in such a way to benefit myself and push everybody else out of the way. But what does Psalm, the psalmist say? Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Here, here's the part I want you to hear. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That's, that's that verse against workaholics right there. Well, I just gotta, I gotta hustle and I gotta grind. I gotta get up early and I gotta go late to rest and nobody can stop me and I'm gonna build this house. I'm gonna build my life and it's build my bank account. And the psalmist says, hey, 
unless the Lord does all that, you're just wasting your time. You're building it in vain. It's all going to come crashing down around you. God gives sleep to his beloved. Point being, if you think the only way I'm going to get ahead is by damaging my health and neglecting my family, you're not building anything. We are to demonstrate in the church that there is a different breed of young man that can inspire the rest of the world. As everybody's lamenting, what's happened to young men today? What's happening to the millennials or the Gen Z? The, where have all the men gone? Well, I'll say we have a lot of really great young men in this church. We should be very proud of that. We've even, uh, Dewan, this last week over at Lawson State, he had a, a meeting for young men to come out so that they could talk about what it means to be a godly man. Amen. I love that. that that's, that's something I didn't plan. We didn't put together. That's just one of our young men saying, let's rally other young men to follow Jesus, to be a good man. And if you're a young man, you've got all this strength and all this energy and all this drive and willingness to take risks. And God wants that. He needs that. That's why God very often called young prophets. Not always. Nehemiah was an old man, for example. Moses was 80. But look at guys like Jeremiah, who he, he even thought he was too young. Why does God do that? Because he goes, I can take this young guy that is all fiery and ready to go and aim him in my direction. So let's not be a church that quenches the fire of young men. Let's not be a church that is constantly saying, well, when, when your life starts and when your turn comes around, that's not how it works. Let's not waste, though, men, our energies on anything else that is lesser than all that. Well, there's one more category in this household, verses 9 and 10. It says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So bond servants, that's a, a polite word for slave. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire was ubiquitous. It was slightly different than what we experienced in the American South, but it's not so different in, in many ways. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the household. You've got mom and dad, you've got the kids, and then you've got the servants that lived in the house. And I'm not going to get into all this. Zach taught through Philemon not long ago. We talked about this in, in the law and went through it. Paul was not trying to overturn the social order as a revolutionary. That's why in Philemon chapter 12, he says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, the runaway slave. But what he said, here's what we'll do instead. We'll infiltrate the social structure. We'll change hearts, and that will transform things from the ground up, which is why he kind of nudges Philemon in Philemon 16 and says, he's really more than a brother to you now, so I'm, I'm confident you'll do the right thing. What's he saying? You really shouldn't be making this Christian slave stay in your house. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem like a very effective way to do it. Guess what? That's the way that worked. It was the church. It was the evangelical Christians that led the charge. Guys like William Wilberforce and Frederick Douglass and all these men, Christians, pastors, that led the way and say, we should not be doing this. So I often say that to people. Well, that's, that was too long. It took too slow. Well, it's what worked. God knew what he was doing. So we're going to move on from that just to kind of look at this here. None of us are slaves in this room, praise God, but it can apply to anybody who is under any kind of authority, especially at work. And it's not an exact parallel, but there's certainly something to learn here. First, he says, is submission. Bond servants are to be submissive. This means if you've got a boss, it's your boss. You don't just show up whenever you want. You don't work halfway and determine your own, your own standards here. You don't fight against every policy that comes down the line. And I've been a manager. I've been in charge of people before. Trying to deal with a non-submissive employee is a nightmare. And it does not make for a nice workplace, I'll just say that. Well-pleasing. 
Christians are to be the best employees, to catch everyone's attention. And you might say, well, that doesn't work. It sure does, because it happened about just about, every, just about every job I've ever had. People say, man, you, you, you're really doing a great job here. And I, what do I do? I say, oh, Jesus teaches me to be a good worker. Well, that, you know, hallelujah. <laughs> they often don't know what to say, right? <laughs> they say, hey, all right, well, that's, that's good, man. And Christians should have a reputation for being hard workers, good workers, that will do what they're supposed to. Not argumentative. Something many of us can learn, including myself from time to time. Let God handle your battles. You shouldn't be an arguer. Now, is there a time to step in and say no? Of course. But you as a Christian should not be the person that says, well, somebody does something I don't like, I'm going to say something. Good luck. See how that works out after 20 years of that. Well, every boss I've ever had has just been a jerk. Hmm. So that seems statistically unlikely. <laughs> also, my kids and spouse and, and everyone in my family is a jerk, too. I just had the worst luck. Well, might be you. <laughs> Argumentative. I've known people that will do this. They'll, they'll be moving from job to job, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your job again. That's so, oh, man, that's so good. And then after a while, you get to know them a little better, and you're like, I think I see why you're moving from job to job all the time. You can't keep your mouth shut. Well, if they're doing it wrong, I'm going to tell them. The Bible says not to be argumentative, not pilfering, not pilfering, not stealing, not taking home things that are not yours. Well, I thought it would be okay. Did you? Then why did you do it secretly? Not taking goods or time. You don't need to be spending a lot of time watching Netflix while you're at the job. You would never do that, but you know, somebody else might. You know. But instead, he says, working in good faith, meaning they can trust you. They can put faith in you, and you're not going to abuse that faith. Oh, he's not in today. We can do whatever we want. Is that really what we do? That's not good faith. We work like God is watching us. Now, because we are not slaves, and because this is not you know, a, a mandatory thing, let's, let's pause and take a look at this. We've all had nasty bosses, I'm sure. And if you're like me and you like to think the best of people, sometimes it takes you a while to realize, he's really not a very nice person, is he? I think he's abusing me. I think he's manipulating me. I think he's trying to squeeze me more than I should. We've all had jobs that we hate. The lucky thing for us as Americans is that we don't have to work there. And there, there are managers and bosses and owners that will try to intimidate you out of leaving a bad situation. If you're in a situation where you in good conscience cannot submit to a boss or you cannot help you know, uh, arguing because the things that they're bringing up are moral, has nothing to do with, you know, should we load on Friday or Thursday, but it's just something about morality, then you should leave. And you're not... You're not somehow abandoning somebody. This is something that will happen is, you ever have a manager that'll be like, we're just like family here. To which you should sit there and go, okay, no, we're not. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be nice, but we're not family. Because what they'll do is they'll tweak that family thing to say, how can you abandon us? It's like, I, I'm glad to be your friend, but I'm here for the paycheck. And that's something I need to say because I know that there are those of us in this room that have been pushed around by somebody taking an inappropriate amount of authority over your life. So we should be living this way, but also remember, you don't have to be there. Oh, I don't know where my next job will come from. God will provide for you. God will provide. We're not to be, though, griping, bouncing from job to job because we have bad character. If, you know, if you're late all the time and you're fighting with your boss and you can't submit to the policies and you're not getting things done on time, it's not going to be better the next job. It's going to happen again. 
Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, meaning when they're watching me, I'll work hard. I was told at my first job, I'll never forget this, I was, we had finished, we were washing dishes, and I was just kind of sitting, waiting around for the next round of dishes to come through, and my boss walks through, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for dishes. You can't stand around. He made me go clean out the walk-in freezer, which was miserable work doing that. And after it was over, one of the guys comes up to me, their dishwasher, goes, hey, man, you got to at least look like you're working, or he'll make you do that. And that never sat right with me, because it's not eye service, making it look like I'm working hard. He wants me to clean out the walk-in? Well, he's the boss. But as, or not as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Check this out. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So whether you're working for yourself, you're in your own business, or you're working a job that you can't stand, but you love your family, and it's what you got to do. The Lord says, if you work that job diligently like you're working for me, I'll reward you for that. You talk about overtime pay. You talk about a bonus structure. When you get to heaven, you're going to be rewarded for how you worked, whether you're bondservant or free. All of this is to adorn the doctrine that when the gospel gets into somebody's life, it transforms them. Don't you love how old-fashioned all of these ideas are? All of these ways of living? And it's not even so much that it's old-fashioned as much as we are very unique in the way that we go about things in our day and age. But they're all compelling, at least they are to me. It's like, yeah, that's the kind of young man I'd like to be. That's the kind of old man I'd like to grow into. That's the kind of woman I want to be married to and that I hope she will grow into, this older woman. And we all see that don't then walk away and say, well, we can't do that, though, because it's 2023 and we have Facebook. I'm calling us all to adorn the gospel and say, hey, all of these virtues that we're missing and that culture is crying out for, the gospel gets us there. And we together, as the household of God, are to be living and helping one another walk this out. So there are ways that you can do this. And just to give a, a couple of quick things, when there's a women's group or a men's group, Go to it. Well, that seems like it's going to be mostly the, the young ladies. They need you there. Well, this is kind of all the older guys. Well, you need to be there, mister. We all need to be coming together to learn these things. Take your kids to these groups so that they can have it exemplified and lived out for them. And conduct, if you're in charge of one of these things, conduct your group or your ministry in such a way that everybody feels like they're accommodated and getting something out of it. Don't just make it nice for this group of people. Make it so that the whole congregation can come together and be edified. So much of this is about self-control, respectability, living our lives like Jesus would if he was there. Because our doctrine is not just to be a badge that we wear. Oh, I'm a Christian, you know. Grace through faith, that's, that's what I believe. All right, what's it done for you? Has it made you a more gracious and truthful person? Has it made you faithful? It's a seed that should bear good fruit. And we are a family in this place. And as I was reading through this, like I said, I don't have a lot to correct in this congregation. I'm so blessed at the, the range of ages and backgrounds that we have here. I get asked very often, usually the first question is, so how many, how many folks you got coming to your church? And I'll tell them, and, oh, is it, is it mostly like young families or is it singles or is it like, you know, an, an older people? And I can honestly say it's, it's a good spread. We had a little bit of everybody. It's a good slice of the community that we're in. We've got the older folks that can be encouraged by the younger folks who can then learn from the older 
folks, and then we got people in the middle. And some of these categories, you understand, are kind of fluid, but as we continue to raise kids here, as we continue to grow old in this place, let's continue to walk it out like Jesus would want us to walk it out. So that that doctrine becomes attractive and adorned to those who are outside. 